Third part of chapter one of the second volume of the Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Sidenote. The heart alienated from the world. Banished from the open day, covered with mockery, and publicly ignored, this necessary pleasure flourishes none the less in dark places and in the secret soul. Its familiar presence there, its intimate habitation in what is most oneself, helps to cut the world in two and to separate the inner from the outer life. In that mysticism which cannot disguise its erotic affinities, this disruption reaches an absolute and theoretic form. But in many a youth little suspected of mysticism, it produces estrangement from the conventional moralizing world, which he instinctively regards as artificial and alien. It prepares him for excursions into a private fairyland in which unthought-of joys will blossom amid friendlier magic forces. The truly good then seems to be the fantastic, the sensuous, the prodigally unreal. He gladly forgets the dreary world he lives in to listen for a thousand and one nights to his dreams. Side note childish ideals this is the region where those who have no conception of the life of reason place the ideal and an ideal is indeed there but the ideal of a single and inordinate impulse a rational mind on the contrary moves by preference in the real world cultivating all human interests in due proportion the lovesick and luxurious dreamland dear to irrational poets is a distorted image of the ideal world but this distortion has still an ideal motive since it is made to satisfy the cravings of a forgotten part of the soul and to make a home for those elements in human nature which have been denied overt existence if the ideal is meantime so sadly caricatured the fault lies with the circumstances of life that have not allowed the sane will adequate exercise. Lack of strength and of opportunity makes it impossible for man to preserve all his interests in a just harmony, and his conscious ideal, springing up as it too often does in protest against suffering and tyranny, has not scope and range enough to include the actual opportunities for action nature herself by making a slave of the body has thus made a tyrant of the soul Sidenote. their light all focused on the object of love fairyland and a mystical heaven contain many other factors besides that furnished by unsatisfied an objectless love all sensuous and verbal images may breed after their own kind in an empty brain but these fantasies are often supported and directed by sexual longings and vaguely luxurious thoughts an oriental paradise with its delicate but mindless aestheticism is above everything 
a garden for love. To brood on such an elysium is a likely prelude and fertile preparation for romantic passion. When the passion takes form, it calls fancy back from its loose reveries and fixes it upon a single object. Then the ideal seems at last to have been brought down to earth. Its embodiment has been discovered amongst the children of men. Imagination narrows her range. Instead of all sorts of flatteries to sense and improbable delicious adventures, the lover imagines but a single joy, to be master of his love in body and soul. Jealousy pursues him. Even if he dreads no physical betrayal, he suffers from terror and morbid sensitiveness at every hint of mental estrangement. Side note. Three environments for love. This attachment is often the more absorbing, the more unaccountable it seems. And as in hypnotism, the subject is dead to all influences but that of the operator. So in love the heart surrenders itself entirely to the one being that has known how to touch it. That being is not selected. It is recognized and obeyed. Prearranged reactions in the system respond to whatever stimulus, at a propitious moment, happens to break through and arouse them pervasively. Nature has opened various avenues to that passion in whose successful operation she has so much at stake. Sometimes the magic influence asserts itself suddenly, and sometimes gently and unawares. One approach, which in poetry has usurped more than its share of attention, is through beauty. Another, less glorious but often more efficacious, through surprised sense and premonitions of pleasure. A third, through social sympathy and moral affinities. Contemplation, sense and association are none of them the essence nor even the seed of love. But any of them may be its soil and supply it with a propitious background. It would be mere sophistry to pretend, for instance, that love is or should be nothing but a moral bound. The sympathy of two kindred spirits or the union of two lives. For such an effect, no passion would be needed, as none is needed to perceive beauty or to feel pleasure. What Aristotle calls friendships of utility, pleasure, or virtue, all resting on common interests of some impersonal sort, are far from possessing the quality of love, its thrill, flutter, and absolute sway over happiness and misery. But it may well fall to such influences to awaken or feed the passion where it actually arises. Whatever circumstances pave the way, love does not itself appear until a sexual affinity is declared. When a woman, for instance, contemplating marriage, asks herself whether she really loves her suitor or merely accepts him, the test is the possibility of awakening a sexual affinity. For this reason, women of the world often love their husbands more truly than they did their lovers. 
because marriage has evoked an elementary feeling which before lay smothered under a heap of coquetries, vanities, and conventions. Side note. Subjectivity of the passion. Man, on the contrary, is polygamous by instinct, although often kept faithful by habit no less than by duty. If his fancy is left free, it is apt to wander. We observe this in romantic passion no less than in a life of mere gallantry and pleasure. Sentimental illusions may become a habit, and the shorter the dream is, the more often it is repeated, so that any susceptible poet may find that he, like Alfred de Musset, must love incessantly who once has loved. Love is indeed much less exacting than it thinks itself. Nine-tenths of its course are in the lover, for one-tenth that may be in the object. Were the latter not accidentally at hand, an almost identical passion would probably have been felt for someone else. For although with acquaintance the quality of an attachment naturally adapts itself to the person loved and makes that person its standard and ideal, the first assault and mysterious glow of the passion is much the same for every object. What really affects the character of love is the lover's temperament, age and experience. The objects that appeal to each man reveal his nature, but those unparalleled virtues and that unique divinity which the lover discovers there are reflections of his own adoration, things that ecstasy is very cunning in. He loves what he imagines and worships what he creates. Side note. Machinery regulating choice those who do not consider these matters so curiously may feel that to refer love in this way chiefly to inner processes is at once ignominious and fantastic but nothing could be more natural the soul accurately renders in this experience what is going on in the body and in the race nature had a problem to solve in sexual reproduction which would have daunted a less ruthless experimenter she had to bring together automatically and at the dictation as they felt of their irresponsible wills just the creatures that by uniting might reproduce the species the complete sexual reaction had to be woven together out of many incomplete reactions to various stimuli, reactions not specifically sexual. The outer senses had to be engaged, and many secondary characters found in bodies had to be used to attract attention, until the deeper instinctive response should have time to gather itself together and assert itself openly. Many mechanical preformations and reflexes must conspire to constitute a determinate instinct. We name this instinct after its ultimate function, looking forward to the uses we observe it to have, and it seems to us in consequence an inexplicable 
anomaly that many a time the instinct is set in motion when its alleged purpose cannot be fulfilled as when love appears prematurely or too late or fixes upon a creature of the wrong age or sex these anomalies show us how nature is built up and far from being inexplicable are hints that tend to make everything clear when once a verbal and mythical philosophy has been abandoned responses which we may call sexual in view of results to which they may ultimately lead are thus often quite independent and exist before they are drawn into the vortex of a complete and actually generative act external stimulus and present idea will consequently be altogether inadequate to explain the profound upheaval which may ensue if as we say we actually fall in love that the senses should be played upon is nothing if no deeper reaction is aroused all depends on the juncture at which so to speak the sexual circuit is completed and the emotional currents begin to circulate whatever object at such a critical moment fills the field of consciousness becomes a signal and associate for the whole sexual mood it is breathlessly devoured in that pause and concentration of attention that rearrangement of the soul which love is conceived in and the whole new life which that image is engulfed in is foolishly supposed to be its effect for the image is in consciousness but not the profound predispositions which gave it place and power sidenote the choice unstable this association between passion and its signals may be merely momentary or it may be perpetual a don juan and a dante are both genuine lovers in a gay society the gallant addresses every woman as if she charmed him and perhaps actually finds any kind of beauty or mere femininity anywhere a sufficient spur to his desire this momentary fascinations are not necessarily false they may for an instant be quite absorbing and irresistible they may genuinely suffuse the whole mind such mercurial fire will indeed require a certain imaginative temperament and there are many persons who short of a lifelong domestic attachment can conceive of nothing but sordid vice but even an inconstant flame may burn brightly if the soul is naturally combustible indeed these sparks and glints of passion just because they come and vary so quickly offer admirable illustrations of it in which it may be viewed so to speak under the microscope and in its formative stage thus plato did not hesitate to make the love of all wines under whatever guise excuse or occasion the test of a true taste for wine and an unfeigned adoration of bacchus and like lucretius after him 
he wittily compiled a list of names by which the lover will flatter the most opposite qualities if they only succeed in arousing his inclination to be omnivorous is one pole of true love to be exclusive is the other a man whose heart if i may say so lies deeper hidden under a thicker coat of mail will have less play of fancy and will be far from finding every charm charming or every sort of beauty a stimulus to love yet he may not be less prone to the tender passion and when once smitten may be so penetrated by an unimagined tenderness and joy that he will declare himself incapable of ever loving again and may actually be so having no rivals and a deeper soil love can ripen better in such a constant spirit it will not waste itself in a continual patter of little pleasures and illusions but unless the passion of it is to die down it must somehow assert its universality what it loses in diversity it must gain in applicability it must become a principle of action and an influence colouring everything that is dreamt of otherwise it would have lost its dignity and sunk into a dead memory or a domestic bond End of chapter 1, part 3